Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, remember 2019? I barely do. It feels like a lifetime ago. And yet somehow it was only mere months. While I had been saving this recording, I did way back in September a conversation with two religion reporters based in Southern California, Deepa Barath of the Orange County Register and Alejandra Molina of the Religion News Service. I had them ready to go in our program schedule and then BAM! COVID-19 hit and everything went out the window. My interview with Deepa and Alejandra came just as Ale was starting her new gig on the God Beat, as it's called. So I was thinking that it would be interesting to get the two of them together again and check in about how their jobs have changed now that we are in the throes of the current pandemic, which was completely unforeseen back when we were all young and innocent in September of 2019. So in the first half of today's show, I'm going to play some of my first interview with Deepa and Alejandra, recorded last year when we were together at the Religion News Writers Association Conference in Las Vegas. And then, in the second half, I'll play my follow-up conversation with the two of them from earlier this week, when we hit the Vegas Strip again. I'm kidding. We recorded it on Zoom. All right, dear listener, enjoy this journey from a pre-pandemic America as we get into some interfaith-ish. Alejandro, you're like the, the new reporter on the scene for RNS in in um, in SoCal, right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. how's it going for you? So good. I started about three weeks ago, and three weeks ago. Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so new. So uh, my beat there is covering uh, religion in the West Coast and with a focus on Latinos, and I'm based in the LA area. And right now I'm just, I've covered, I've been a reporter for the past 10 plus years, but I've never exclusively covered religion. Mm. And um, I think I'm very familiar with Southern California because I was born and raised around LA County. I worked at the Orange County Register, so I know Orange County. Um, I also lived in uh, the Inland Empire area, and I worked at the Press Enterprise uh, in Riverside. So I have a pretty good understanding of how Southern California works, and I know where to go to find stories, but I've never covered religion. Mm. So right now I'm just kind of trying to immerse myself in different religious communities and uh, sourcing and just attending mass at you know, any kind of uh, house of worship. And so I'm just becoming familiar with the beat right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what, what about you? Like, what was your upbringing like, like in, that, in that area? Were you com- are you coming from a religious family yourself? So I was raised Catholic and, um, you know, baptized, uh, uh, first communion. I was not confirmed. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, we did uh, go to Sunday Mass at a Catholic church in El Monte. Um, I think it was called Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, but when we got older, I think also it was a combination of my parents just getting busy. Um, we didn't we didn't go as as often as we would in the past. Mm. And so we kind of just, I think it, traditionally I'm Catholic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I'm not a practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not even sure how seeped into the tradition I am anymore because I don't, I don't know. I feel when you grow up Latino in California or in LA, your identity is very linked to Catholicism, but I just don't, I'm not immersed in any church community. Is it a generational thing, do you think? Do you think the older set, your parents' age and everything, is more traditional and more observant at the same time? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But also, you know, my younger brother, he's 33, he was the same as I was, where we didn't go to church and we didn't consider ourselves Catholic, but when he got married, you know, he started going, he was confirmed. They got married in the Catholic Church. They found a church community that they really related with, and now he goes to Mass every Sunday. Mm. So he was able to find the faith again. Yeah. Coming from an immigrant household, also, your parents are really busy. So mm. maybe when we were younger, maybe when there was just one kid involved, it was easier to go to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. But as you get older and you have more kids and you work in class, they work over the weekend, it's just harder to maintain go to church every Sunday. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like when you grow up in Mexico, even going to visit family in Mexico, and we're from a small town in Guanajuato, mm. it's and just... your first generation, your parents Yeah, first were, generation uh-huh. here. My parents are immigrants. Um, if you're from a smaller town over there in Mexico, it's easier to be still ingrained in the church mm-hmm. because that's more of a social thing. Yeah, here, yeah. It's, you can have a social life anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you get the sense that, that the... I mean, obviously, Catholic is a huge part of it. But that there's there's also a, a diversity even within the Latino community of other religious expression and so forth that you're starting to yeah to discover yeah and so in the LA area in Southern California um, the Latino Latinx community is very uh, diverse I mean it, it's not all Mexican or Mexican American yeah. there's Central Americans um, you know and that includes Salvadoran Guatemalan. Nicaraguan, and so um, there is a big Catholic, obviously, population sure. within Latinos, but, you know, there's also Latinos who are in Pentecostal churches, evangelicals, Mus- uh, they're mu- uh, Muslim, and so I want to explore all these communities that I don't know much about because mm-hmm. I grew up in the Catholic faith, and so um, I think what I can bring to the table is I don't have this sophisticated knowledge in religion, but I'm just really curious of how people who from who are from my community, and not just Mexican American, but people who are in the entire Latinx community, in my community, how they live out their spiritual lives. Because I'm just genuinely curious, and I want to immerse myself in in all these communities out here. Yeah, and you've got you've got a great resource in your colleague <laughs> Deepa here. So Deepa, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how it is that you came to be a religion reporter in Southern California? So I'm an immigrant. Um, I was born and raised in uh, Chennai, India, mm-hmm. which is the southeast coast of India. And I was raised in a very traditional Hindu household. Mm-hmm. Um, my family members are proud Hindus. And I grew up questioning everything that they believed in and everything that we did at home. Why do we do the things we do? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where my religion reporting started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come Asking to think good of questions. It. Asking questions. My mom was not at all happy about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think I, um, I was always interested in writing and telling stories, and that led me to journalism. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I got married in India, 
and uh, moved with my husband to the U.S. to mm -hmm. study for, for higher studies. Mm -hmm. And we both went to Syracuse University in New York. That's right. And you were telling me that you were really happy about landing in that location. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Um, so uh, where I come from, it's really hot and humid. Uh -huh. And Syracuse is, the, is humid, but uh, far from hot. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, and I need a lot of solar power to uh, energize me. And I did not get enough of that. And I was not happy. Bleak winters. Uh, yes, very bleak and long uh -huh. and very long. It, <laughs> I, I remember it snowed the year we were there. We landed, it snowed on graduation day. So what? that's how In bad May. it is. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. So I was happy to move out west. Yeah. Uh, when I got a job at the Orange County Register, I was super happy. Um, we moved and uh, we, when we landed here, we knew it was home. Mm. So mm -hmm. uh, the diversity, the uh, vibrancy of uh, Southern California just appealed to us so much yeah. that, that we are happy to call this our home, and call Southern California our home. And how long have you um, been working there at the Register? I started out at the Register, but I was only there initially for a year. Okay. And then I moved to the LA Times Community Papers. Okay. And I was there for five years, and then I moved to the Daily Breeze, which is in Torrance. Mm. And then I came back to the Register, okay. so I made a full circle. Yeah. And I've been at the Register, uh, my second stint, yeah. um, since 2006. And you're not exclusive on the religion beat. You've got an, an, no. a general reporting job, but that intersects with, with religion from time to time. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, really, for the Register, I started covering the cities of Garden Grove and Westminster. And that, in my, that is one of the most favorite beats I covered. Because Garden Grove and Westminster are such diverse cities. Mm. Um, Westminster is home to Little Saigon, which is the largest Vietnamese community outside of Vietnam. Oh, wow, okay. So it is there that I was exposed to covering different cultures. There's also a large Korean-American population there. There's a Cambodian community there, a Laotian community. So um, I was really exposed to all sorts of cultures, and it was fascinating. Mm. Um, and it was also uh, on the Garden Grove beat that I um, broke the Crystal Cathedral uh, story where this megachurch founded by Robert H. Schuller was going bankrupt. And uh, I got an email from the lady who supplied camels to the Glory of Christmas uh, show okay, at, at the Crystal Cathedral. <laughs> supplied camels? Well, they okay. had a live animal show. They uh -huh. had a, you know, at the Christmas, it, it was really unique. It's, it's iconic, really, for people in that region. If it's Christmas, you have to go watch the glory of Christmas at oh the Crystal Cathedral. With live camels. With live animals. They had all kinds of llamas. They had like all kinds of animals. Uh -huh. And so the woman who supplied the camels to the show um, wrote an email to me saying, hey, I didn't get paid um, because the church doesn't have money. And that really shocked me because I thought the Crystal Cathedral had a lot of money. Right. What's the going rate for a camel in Southern California? <laughs> it was thousands of dollars. She was oh worth thousands goodness. of dollars. Wow. Her husband had, was diagnosed with cancer mm. and she was about to lose her house. So she was desperate and that's why she emailed me. Wow. And um, so I, I started looking into it. Um, I dug up some court records and found that they owed a lot of people a lot of money. And uh, that was the first story I wrote. And then for the two years after that, I followed, um, I, follow, I, I, I investigated the church more and more. Um, I, a lot of people came forward with information. I started attending elder meetings, um, spending my weekends at the church. Um, and, and a lot of people were unhappy with what was going on. So they, were, they willingly came forward with information. Mm -hmm. And as you know, it's very hard to investigate a church because they are not required to file tax documents mm -hmm. like other corporations are, mm -hmm. other nonprofits are. So it was very hard to find information. So the only way for me was to get 
get down and dirty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what are, you know, as an experienced journalist, what are some of those techniques that you use then to be able to, to, to you know, do hard-nosed investigative journalism in that, but obviously around these type of sensitive subjects, like in a somewhat opaque environment of a church community? Well, yeah, it definitely wasn't easy, but, you know, I enlisted the help of some of the more invest experienced investigative mm. reporters in the newsroom who were still there at the time, um, and, uh, and, and, and kind of explored um, documents that I could look into. There were property records that I could look into, um, the county office. Um, but other than that, I had to rely on the kindness of people who were not happy with the church. Mm -hmm. uh, they provide a lot of documents, came forward with a lot of stories. There was one story where um, Dr. Schuler's um, daughter had uh, asked all the choir members to sign an anti-gay covenant, saying that they would not be in the choir if they were gay. Wow. And a lot of the choir members were gay. Mm -hmm. So um, I wrote that story and, and got a call from uh, Reverend Schuler the next day. He called me from his limousine, he said. The, on my the desk. The Reverend was rolling around the limousine. Well, he usually drives uh, rides in a limousine. Uh -huh. But um, um, he said, I'm calling you from my limo and you should be honored uh, that I'm calling you. Wow. So, um, but, but I was at my desk and I was so happy I was at my desk that day to take that call, mm -hmm. and he said he was really mad that I wrote the story, and he would not, he would never uh, not welcome gay people into his church, mm -hmm. and his, his church is a hospital for sinners, as mm -hmm. he often said in his book. So, um, so um, that story turned out to be really, I mean, I think that's what really turned me to religion reporting. Mm. I, I was a city, city's reporter yeah. when I was writing those stories. And that caught the attention of my editors, and they asked me if I wanted to be on the religion beat. Yeah. And that's how I started. So for folks who, don't, who aren't familiar with Southern California, and that, you, know, you talked a little bit about the cultural diversity that's yeah. there, the different immigrant populations. Tell us about the religious diversity as well. What, 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 what have you found there, and what have been some of the particularly, you know, maybe most imp impressive or surprising uh, religious communities that you've come across in that area? Yeah, I mean, we have a... We have pretty much every religion you can think of. We have a very vibrant Muslim community. Mm. We have a vibrant Jewish community. Um, we also have a Hindu community, a Buddhist community, a Sikh community, a Baha'i community. And um, we have several swirls of different cultures and religions. Mm. For example, we have a church, I'm sorry, we have a mosque in Santa Ana the Islamic Society of Santa Ana, which um, is made up of members of the Cham community, people who fled uh, Cambodia, mm. um, and, and they're Muslims. So really? it's a mosque okay. that is uh, mostly, comprised, com mostly comprising members of that community. Cambodian Muslims. Refugee community, yes. Mm. Mm. Um, we also have uh, plenty of faiths among the Vietnamese community. Majority, they're also a vastly refugee community. Um, we have Buddhists, uh, we have a faith called Khao Dai, which is a, a kind of a sect of Buddhism, but uh, they have uh, interesting, um, with an interesting twist. Yeah. Uh, they do a lot of chanting, and it's really fascinating to watch them in action. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have, we have uh, religions of all stripes in Southern and California. What have you observed about the sort of interaction between them? Do, do they tend to be mostly insular? Do they tend to have 
interaction with one another on on um, on certain projects, things like that, stuff that you've covered. They, I think, they used to be largely insular, but more more and more of these communities are becoming politically active, mm. uh, especially after the 2016 elections. I've okay. seen um, a lot of collaboration between faith communities and um, just communities in general. Uh, for example, there was a Latino uh, Muslim collaboration in Orange County mm-hmm. where uh, these two activists from the community, a Muslim activist and, and a Latino activist, uh, joined together to do this program called Taco Trucks in Every Mosque. Uh, so great. basically it was inspired by this, uh, I forget the name of the politician, a conservative politician who said, um, soon we're going to have taco trucks in every, on every street corner or something uh-huh. like that. So it was a reaction to that, uh-huh. and uh, so that became a huge hit. Uh-huh. Probably um, not too many carnitas tacos, though, at the... No, at the, they were the halal mosque. tacos. <laughs> <laughs> they were halal tacos, yeah. um, and, and they used, you know, there was a taco truck uh, that went to every mosque uh, at the end of Ramadan, mm. at the end of the day, right. for, and, and they had tacos for iftar. To build solidarity. To build solidarity, uh-huh. and, and who doesn't like tacos? Uh-huh. Exactly. And that was a great way to start a conversation, a yeah. dialogue, and, and I think it was imitated around the country. Different uh, cities started to do that. Yeah. So that was great. I thought that was a great uh, collaborative. Cool, cool. Ali, do you have um, do you have particular communities that you have your eye on that you're you're looking to to do some reporting on? And tell yeah. us a little bit about. It. So a few things that I'm working on right now. Um, in the Coachella area, in the Inland Empire, there is an influx of uh, Central American asylum seekers. Um, and they're here legally because they were granted asylum. Um, but there's just been so many, and Border Patrol, federal uh, immigration officials have just not been able to process all of them. So a church in the Coachella area has stepped in, and what they've been doing is they have been arranging travel for them um, to like usually more eastern states, um, and uh, to meet with family over there. They provide clothes, they feed them, and that's something that technically the federal government is supposed to do. And so because um, the Catholic population in the Inland Empire is growing significantly. Mm-hmm. And one reason is that um, working class people in Orange County and LA can't afford to live there. And they move out to the Inland Empire for more affordable housing. And many of, of this, uh, you know, this migration from these other counties, they tend to be working class and Catholic immigrant. And so the diocese in the region is booming, even though, you know, it's been reported that younger people and more people are leaving Catholicism, Mm -hmm. the diocese there is booming. And this church is, has an influx. Um, So on a Sunday mass, you normally see a stream of like people waiting outside, lines trying to get into the church. And so this uh, church is called Our Lady of Soledad. And so they're building a completely new church to accommodate the growth over there. Another thing that I really want to focus on or work on, um, like I said, Latino Muslims. And one thing that I've learned and that I'm curious about is that it's really important for Latino Muslim converts to learn Islam in Spanish. And so um, there's a 
in Southern California, I think from what I've gathered, there's not a lot of spaces, a lot of mosques that can cater to Latino Muslim converts um, and to teach them you know, how to pray, how to learn the Quran in Spanish. And so I attended this class at a mosque in Fontana um, and this young man who was a student at the Claremont School of Theology, he's Mexican-American and he's uh, Muslim, he's taking it upon himself to teach people in the Inland Empire, uh, Latino Muslim converts, um, just a religion in Spanish. And it, in English too, and it, but he infuses like Mexican-American traditions uh, with the religion. And so the reason he's doing it in the Inland Empire is that if someone lives in Fontana, they, uh, he said that there's a mosque in Anaheim that really has a, a strong Latino population. Mm. So they would have to drive from Fontana to Orange County, which is 50 miles plus, oh. to just to get that knowledge. Yeah. And so I want to write about the lack of these spaces for the Latino Muslim uh, community in, in learning the religion. Mm -hmm. And I also want to learn why they, it's so important for them to learn the religion in Spanish. Yeah. So that's one thing I'm really curious about. In interfaith spaces, we find that um, being made to talk about our own, be a representative of our own religious tradition, um, helps sharpen some of our beliefs, you know, because, because you're, you're made to actually think about not just taking it for granted, but actually refine, oh, what is it that I uh, feel about this? So I, I'm curious, as a reporter, does reporting about other people's religious traditions and things, has it ever, has it clarified for you the things that you believe or do you feel like you, has, has it created more of a melting pot of your own beliefs? No, I think, uh, I think it has clarified a lot for me personally. Um, I find a lot of similarities between religions. Um, I, I like to think of religion as, um, you know, you, the reason we have different religions is the same reason we have different languages, same reason we have different clothes, different kinds of food. Mm -hmm. uh, is uh, Religion is kind of actually shaped by our own experience, mm -hmm. our culture, our traditions. Uh, in, in many ways, religion is the language of spirituality. So, um, so I, think, uh, I think where you grew up uh, and the culture and traditions you're, you grew up in influence um, how you practice your religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you, Alejandro? What did, in your, in your, I know you're you're new on the religion beat, yeah. um, but you've been a reporter for these these. Uh, you said ten years yeah. now. So what what have you observed for yourself about things that you've um, reported on that maybe changed your perspective on yeah. in, in things? What do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I grew up Catholic, and I don't consider myself a practicing Catholic, but I remember just growing up, I really resented the Virgin of Guadalupe because I felt like she was a symbol of everything I couldn't do. Because my mom, whenever she would say, like, you can't dress a certain way, you know, uh, it was very stigmatized, you know, having a sexual relationship, uh, being a virgin until you get married. So I always resented this symbol. Of, she was just a symbol of everything I was not allowed to do. And so, <laughs> um, but then when growing up and knowing people my age, knowing women who you know, we had similar ideals and just knowing that they used, the, the Virgin Mary was a, a strong symbol for them. 
because and then even just as a reporter, you know, covering immigration, the Virgin Mary is a symbol for justice, she's a symbol for immigrants. And so just be learning more about, you know, where the people who are like me are coming from or people who practice Catholicism, you know, just learning why they they have so much faith in the Virgin Mary and just, you know, understanding more of the symbolism of it, it, it makes a little bit more sense to me, you know, I mean, and I mean, when I, w- I was very young, when I was questioning, you know, my faith, because it's just very, to me, growing up, Catholicism was just, I don't know, it was very strict, and it was just meant that there was a lot of things I couldn't do. And so um, I do, and, in this B, I want to learn how how people who are like me, how they balance their faith and their identity. You know, if you, you know, many of my friends who got married in the Catholic Church, um, I feel like they have progressive ideals, um, and I want to learn how they balance those ideals with their identity as a Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, why, uh, how it is that they stay at in their church. And, you know, when I, I did cover religion, um, when I covered immigration, immigration is very tied to religion. And so I did cover some religion stories and I would attend, you know, certain uh, mass at, in the Inland Empire. And there was this church um, in Riverside and the pastor was very social justice driven. And um, I once attended a mass, a midweek mass on Wednesday like at noon and it was packed and so I had never gone to a church that was that packed on a Wednesday in the middle of a week Mm -hmm. and so the reason why people followed this priest so much is that he was very social justice driven he was very about immigrant rights Mm -hmm. he um he saw the church as a way to help other people very um and so that really opened my eyes and um because uh, the churches that I went to were not about action like that. Mm -hmm. So I want, you know, I feel like this beat is a really great opportunity for me to just learn about the way different, you know, the way people practice our faiths. I just want to point out one thing that Alex actually told me what story she's going to do in the next week or two. Yeah. And uh, we cover the same area. Uh I'm in in an empire too. Uh So that shows you how much trust she has, Mm. divulging what her story ideas. (laughs) Maybe she didn't think about it, but I'm just saying that's a lot of trust. Give it away. Deepa's going to scoop her. It's just wonderful that we have that level of trust. I appreciate it. So I kind of forgot that Deepa was now covering the Illan Empire. So now I'm questioning myself because I I just forgot. I don't Don't worry, I'm not going to steal your story. I promise. Not stealing. We have it on record. You had the story idea first. Yeah. So what are you most excited about the religion beat? Um, I think I've always, in every single beat that I've covered, I mean, I've covered transportation, crime, cops, immigration. Um, I feel like I always wanted to write about Latinos and people who are like me because I just felt like, you know, newsrooms are not the most diverse spaces in terms of race or gender or class. And so I wanted to be able to write about my community the way I see it, the way I live it. And so I always tried to look at every single beat um, in terms of like 
like race and and class and gender even if i was covering a transportation beat um you know like when bus service was being slashed in orange county i wanted to see how it was affecting nighttime workers who relied on the bus and many of those nighttime workers were immigrant or who worked in the service industry jobs and i always looked at issues that way so now with this beat where i can focus on latinos and I can explore Latinos through religion, that just adds so like layers on top of layers. And I'm just super excited to, to just learn because I don't know much about religion. And so I hope that people who are like me and don't have this, this deep knowledge on different kinds of religion, I hope that as I'm learning, they're learning as well. And so um, that's what I'm excited about. Excited about. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your report, reporting for the Religion News Service and Deepa. I'm looking forward to being able to enjoy more of your work now that Thank I have you. these uh, <laughs> these insights to, to what it's like over in SoCal across the way. And looking forward to hopefully visiting Orange County at some point soon. Please do. To, uh, We'd be happy to take you around. And know where all the good tacos are, apparently. Yes. <laughs> Great. Yes. Great. Good. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So that was pretty cool, dear listener, hearing about Alejandra and Deepa's personal journeys to becoming religion reporters covering religion in Southern California. You could really hear Ali's excitement as she's starting out on this new beat last summer. And now we call upon the radio gods through the modern miracle of technology. We will spirit ourselves forward to earlier this week, the last days of April 2020, as our nation and our world finds itself in the grips of the COVID-19 pandemic. How are our two talented journalists faring in this new reality of social distancing and stay-at-home orders? How are they adapting their approaches to reporting news stories? And how are the religious communities Deepa and Alejandra are covering, responding, particularly in this season, awash with spring festivals and pivotal holidays. Keep listening, dear listener, for part two of my conversation with Deepa Barath and Alejandra Molina. Hello. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me okay. <laughs> okay. Hi, Deepa. Hey, Alex. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing? Oh, so nice to see you guys. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the last time that we were together, we were in Las Vegas. Uh, so do you guys want to go to Las Vegas now? I hear they're open for business. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm okay. <laughs> I'm good where I'm at. <laughs> you can jump on a plane and go over there. The mayor says it's all cool. Well, you know, you could come over to our beaches out in OC. So. Are those oh like Florida beaches? Do we, do don't get me started. Yeah, they, they reopened the beaches. So over the weekend, it reached like almost 100 degrees and people just went in droves to the wow. beach. Oh boy. Well, I'm, I'm glad that both of you were available to, to do this little check-in. I can't believe that it's been like nine months <laughs> since, or maybe closer to six, six or seven. We saw each other in, in Vegas because it feels yeah. like a whole other world. Ali, this was your your first year on your, on your beat. I think you had just been on a couple of weeks at the time yeah. we had talked. Um, so, what were some of those initial stories that, that you got your feet wet getting to know the community out there? 
Well, um, I think one of the pieces that I really enjoyed working on was on how um, it was right after, I think it was November, last November, around that time when um, the Pew came out with new uh, numbers that showed that U.S. Latinos were no longer majority Catholic. Mm. And so um, I think I, I, I really liked the way that story turned out because I didn't just go and talk to, you know, religion experts <clears throat> and professors. I wanted to understand how, you know, everyday people, you know, how they whether they grew up Catholic and why they left the faith or what keeps them in it, I wanted to understand more of that. And so, you know, I, um, I issued like a social media call out and that's how that story started asking people about, Hey, you know, if you grew up Catholic or are you Catholic, why do you remain in the faith? Why did you leave it? And then I set up interviews that way and I just visited them at their homes Mm -hmm. and at their workplace. And, um, and so having like those those conversations with them really helped me understand, um, I guess, more of the landscape as to why that's changing so much. And um, that was, I think that was my first story where, because I got hired with this grant from the AP and the conversation, that's mm-hmm. the first story of mine that made it to the AP wire. And right. it was like my first national byline. Right. So um, I got to see my story on like the Washington Post and the AP and all these other news sites. So, so I think that story just reinforced how important it is to do kind of like that on the ground reporting and also getting those expert voices, but you get more of the, those nuances by by getting those kind of human stories in there. And and so then all of a sudden, you know, 2020 hit and and pretty quickly into it, just as it sounds like you were getting your feet wet, you had this big shift now in in the focus of your reporting. So how does how do you feel like that's affected that momentum that you were building going out into the community? It was kind of, I had to reset like the way I I think or the way I work and, and, um, but I'm learning a lot of, you know, I've actually been able to source in a different way because of of what we're writing about. So I, you know, we, we've been working on stories on how this uh, virus is affecting small churches and their finances. And, um, you know, I've, I've talked to like Methodist pastors and, you know, pastors from like Episcopal churches, Catholic churches, and, um, you know, churches in Inglewood and all sorts of uh, like areas in, in LA and outside of LA. And I feel like the contacts that I've made with those people, I can keep following up with them and see how, you know, after the pandemic or, you know, how they're continuing how they will continue to to do church and you know once it's when it's time to reopen how will they be doing that and so um i'm still making connections and most of it through social media like facebook and twitter and instagram and um and then just very like old school also just calling churches like the the like direct line that they have on their google you know direction so um so yeah so i'm still making those connections and i'll make sure to follow up with them to see you know post-pandemic 
you know, how they're affected. Deepa, how about you? What have been some of the <coughs> changes to to stories that you've been working on or, or new stories that have emerged over the last couple of weeks? Right. So um, it's interesting because I am pretty much the only one left in my company who has a deeper um, knowledge of covering health. So they, they put me, you know, I've, I've been placed on a uh, coronavirus task force uh, newsroom wide. Oh, well. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I've been writing a lot of health related stories as well as religion related ones. Oh, okay. And, and the one thing that struck me as soon as I started covering COVID and religion was that, well, you know, we've had a lot of these crises before. We had the economic downturn. We had the, we had 9-11. And even if, as far as, as far back as the Great Depression, you know, but people had a church to go to, a temple to go to uh, when they wanted to find spiritual strength. But this was the first crisis where people could not do that. And I think that hit everyone pretty hard. And the timing of it was, you know, around, around uh, Passover and Easter and Ramadan. And I think that's really hitting communities very, very hard because there's a huge social uh, component to those uh, religious festivals with iftar during Ramadan and Passover seders, and that was not possible. So obviously everybody's just like we are right now, spending their life on the computer <laughs> and and zooming with with all their all their friends. I was talking with a friend today, and and uh, said that they're a, they're now a zoomitarian. That's their. <laughs> The religious <laughs> identification. So, uh, you know, in the communities that you've talked to, do you feel like there have been beyond just moving it onto Zoom for for pastoral services or for sermons and things like that? Have there been other adaptations that have surprised you? the ways in which people are, are choosing either to celebrate or come together as community? Yeah, so at RNS, one of the, before, before Holy Week, or during Holy Week, we were, a few of us were checking um, with churches and uh, congregations in our areas just to see how they were preparing and what their plans were going to be for Holy Week and Easter. And um, I uh, talked to... Um, a Jesuit priest from um, a church in Boyle Heights, which is a uh, mostly a Latino community in the east side of LA. And the really, a really cool thing that they did is, um, you know, the priest, um, so he's like this very like humble man with like a, like a really like bushy beard and like with glasses. And what he did is he like, he got on top of a pickup truck and um, on Palm Sunday, like on the back of the truck, somebody was driving him and he blessed like the alleys, the streets and homes that they passed around the neighborhood. So um, it was really cool and endearing to see how much it meant to the residents of that community. So from the homes, like from the inside of their homes, outside their doors, they like kind of held, they just held their palms as they saw the priest in the truck coming mm. by. And, you know, he would bless them. And I think a church member, you know, was kind of recording everything just through a phone. It was a very simple thing, just through a phone. And people would like look directly at the camera and ask for 
blessings and prayers from the public, you know, for their families who were struggling with cancer or any other illnesses during the virus, the pandemic. And so um, that was just like a way that that church and they don't have like this robust online presence, it's a very humble church. That was just like a way for them to at a distance still be within the community. And um, that little video got its decent amount of shares. And, um, you know, one Facebook commenter, I think he said something like, oh, the priest is bringing Jesus to our streets. And um, it was just really nice to see because you could tell that a lot of these people were yearning for like, to see their neighbors outside, at least from a distance and just, you know, and, and the priest knew pretty much everybody he would pass by, he would greet by name. And um, he would go into like apartment complexes and just he would see like ladies just coming out of their door, uh, you know, waving their palms. So that was like a really neat way to see of like taking the church outside and, you know, even though they're socially distant and outside of the outside of a Zoom conference. Cool. I'm I'm looking it up on on RNS right now. I see. I see your friend in his bushy beard. <laughs> oh, you see, did you see it? Yeah. I yeah, yeah. will have to find the, the video. That sounds awesome. It yeah. sounds like such a great visual. Yeah, um, it's, yeah. It so was I'll really have, neat. i to look up that video. Cool. How about, Deepa, how about, how about you? Surprises, ways in which people are, are innovating, bringing faith. Yeah. So um, I, I did, the, I wrote the story about uh, drive-in churches and how they were making a comeback in Southern California because mm-hmm. of COVID. Um, and interesting, interestingly enough, the person who started it out in Southern California was Robert A. Schuller, the son of Robert H. Schuller, who founded the Crystal Cathedral Megachurch. Mm. Um, and he began his church at the Orange Drive-In Theater back in 1955, uh, because that was a good way at that time for him to connect with the people who were unchurched, as he called them. Yeah. So uh, now his son was doing it at the time of COVID, and that was really interesting. I drove out there and uh, I met all these people uh, who had gathered in, a, in an office parking lot uh, to listen to him speak. Um, he, ha- he was broadcasting through an FM station, I'm sorry, an AM station, yep. radio station, and people had tuned in on their radios and it was pretty cool. Uh, they, they, they were serving coffee at the parking lot and people were wearing masks and gloves and it was quite, a, quite an interesting way to connect for people. And that's a church that you have history reporting on, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think we talked about that last time. Yeah. Interesting. So now, now you're now you're following the son. Was the son uh, as nice to you as the father was? Oh, they're all nice. <laughs> they're all super nice. Yeah. They're all very nice. It was like a little reunion. Like people were like, "Oh, Deepa, you're here." You know, mm. we used to re- we used to follow your Crystal Cathedral stories and. It was in, it was interesting to be there, and there was another church that did uh, drive up communion uh, right. in Orange uh, as well. Um, so they did uh, they handed out communion packets to people, and then they would go home and listen to the service. So that was that was something new as well. And what about uh, for other faith traditions? Ways that you heard people celebrating Passover? Any any standout stories? Well, I think there was a lot of Zoom Passovers yeah. this year. Yeah. You know, yeah, people would just, uh, and, and also the conservative uh, rabbis had issued a statement saying it was okay to do Zoom, especially if your mental health was at risk. 
Right. Because a lot of people who are alone, who are seniors, who, who don't have family close by. And I also spoke with a rabbi who, uh, with Hillel in Orange County, who was doing uh, services for students mm-hmm. uh, who were here by themselves and couldn't connect with their families. So that was really interesting. Yeah, that was, it was an interesting um, uh, development that, that the more um, religious uh, or observant community has got a bit of a pass, you know, when it mm-hmm. comes to being able to use the technology, which is not something that, that um, is, is typically the case, although there are other situations where, where there are exemptions made and so forth. So it was interesting to read about that being, being an exemption um, this mm-hmm. year. And now we're now we're in the thick of of Ramadan. Have have both of you been doing stories about about Ramadan as well? Um, not me, but um, Aisha Khan did this really great uh, feature about innovative ways that Muslims were celebrating Ramadan. And I, I read it, and she highlighted this um, twenty four. I think he's twenty four years old. Like this programmer who created this website called um, remoteiftar.com. And what it does is it matches people in the same time zones to share online iftars. And um, so that's something really neat that I saw. And she also mentioned that, um, you know, Islamic, uh, I think like the Islamic network group um, had organized online interfaith iftars as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, Shoulder to Shoulder is, is doing that. Deepa, what about what about for you? Any any um, stories around Ramadan that have come up in the last week? Well, um, so far I haven't heard of anything um, completely different. I mean, people are doing a lot of Zoom iftars, and as you know, it's such a such an important time uh, for interfaith communities to connect uh, through iftars. Uh, Ramadan has become a time when a lot of faith communities connect with one another. So, right. so they are eager to promote uh, uh, online iftars mm-hmm. as well. So we'll have to see how that plays out since Ramadan just began. We'll have to see how I would like to follow a family or see, mm-hmm. you know, how, how so, some people are celebrating differently this year. There was a beautiful recording that I watched. I think it was just yesterday where one of the, it was shared by one of the members of, of one of the major mosques in, in Northern Virginia. And it was actually a video compilation of folks who um, were at a local synagogue that typically hosts a satellite prayer service on Fridays for that Muslim community. And the members of that congregation were all talking about how they missed their Muslim neighbors, seeing mm-hmm. them on Friday and, and coming and joining them and oh. coming to their home that they were, um, they always looked forward to every week receiving them and felt like they were members of their home as well. Um, and so then they were, you know, extending their Ramadan greetings and everybody to mm-hmm. everybody. But it was, right. it was, uh, yeah, such a lovely sentiment. This idea that this holy month um, has come to mean something special, not just for Muslims, but for for their friends mm-hmm. and people who who celebrate with them and you know either fast in solidarity with them or host them for for an iftar, be of service to them. Yeah. Right. Yes, and it's a, and service is such a big part of um, uh, both Ramadan and, and and these other holidays. And obviously, this is a time where where we we need more than ever for people to 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 
recognize our shared humanity and be of service to one another. So I'm curious if there are other, if there are, you know, either in the health sector, like you were talking about Deepa earlier, mm-hmm. or, or otherwise, if there are other, um, you know, ways that people are being of service, stepping up to be of service to their neighbors. Is there anything that's come across yeah. your purview? Definitely. Um, just a couple of days ago for this weekend, I wrote a story about the Sikh community. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, that is uh, working over time, uh, especially the Sikh community in Riverside, California here, mm. um, that, that has served 40,000 meals over four weeks to the community. They're doing drive-throughs uh, at the temple itself. And then they're also uh, serving meals to healthcare workers. They're taking the meals to the hospitals, dropping them off. And they're also taking meals to senior centers and uh, senior homes, uh, senior living spaces and, and dropping them off there. So um, they have done tremendous work. Um, we also have a Khalsa, the Khalsa Foundation in uh, Pacoima, Los Angeles, that does uh, similar work. They have a food pantry and they also pr- provide hot meals. Yeah. 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 That's, that's and, really and, amazing. And a logistical feat to be able to do that and still keep themselves safe and the people that they're serving safe. Yeah, it's amazing. Actually, they've partnered with uh, two restaurants, two Indian restaurants locally to uh, provide you know, uh, they cook the meals there in the morning and then they pack them and take them uh, to the places of delivery. And they provide really, it's what, I, what I found interesting, it's a cultural thing, was that they provide Indian food, right? They provide like rice and, and uh, red kidney beans and garbanzos and they provide biryani. And a lot of people who receive them don't know what food they're eating. <laughs> so I, I actually talked, I talked to one woman who actually, she got biryani, but and she thought she was eating rice and chicken. There was no chicken there. But she, she had no idea what she was eating. And, but she said, I loved it. I've never had anything like this in my life, but I just, I love the food. <laughs> so I thought this is like people's first exposure to Indian food, you know, yeah. um, in this time yeah. of need. So that, that was really interesting. Well, good food is always a, a terrific unifier. Also. Absolutely. And the sick yes. community is always good for that. <laughs> oh, they are the best. Yeah. <laughs> So, and what about for, for the both of you? Professionally, I'm really curious how, yeah, what are your reflections on if we're going to be in this situation for months, you know, at least maybe through the summer, how that's going to go for your work? I guess one of the things that I had to grapple with or just come to terms with is, you know, there were a few stories that I was really excited to work on. And then, you know, when this first struck, I thought, I don't know, I feel like we we didn't really know how long it was going to last or I don't know, maybe we thought, okay, maybe this could last a couple of weeks and then we'll be good. And then when it started sinking in that, you know, who knows what normalcy will look like. Mm-hmm. I just had to come to terms that some of those stories were not going to pan out because they may not be relevant anymore. Or at this time, I don't think, not that people won't care about those stories, but, um, you know, we should go to where the need is or where the story is right now. And so just coming to terms with, you know, maybe shelving some of those stories or even, you know, realizing that they may not be newsworthy or may not be relevant anymore. Mm. So I guess it's just, you know, coming to terms with that. And um, I guess I haven't really thought far ahead as to how this beat could change or how, I don't know. I mean, we've done stories. I've I've done a few stories that are not COVID related, but I don't, I don't know yet. I don't know how it's, 
how this is going to be the next month or the next few weeks. Yeah, it's so all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. Although I guess yeah. you're, you're practicing that spiritual quality of, of detachment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Deepa, how about for you yeah. as, a, as a veteran reporter who's no doubt gone through peaks and valleys and, and, and so forth, what, what, what are some of the lessons that, that you've been taking from this time? Well, this is uh, like nothing that, we, that anyone's ever experienced before. Uh, for me personally, I think it's been really uh, great to, to document things as they happen. I mean, that's kind of kept me sane through, through everything that's going on. Uh, personally speaking, and then, you know, professionally, I think there's been no dearth of story ideas. Um, uh, There's, you know, just as I finish something, another something else shows up, we get a lot of tips uh, via social media, over the phone. There's been no break in the news cycle as far as COVID is concerned and, you know, the number of issues that that we're looking at. It was already a... um fire hose that we were drinking out of before this, right? Where things were so different week to week, people would wake up and say, wait a minute, that was just last week. It felt like a million Mm -hmm. years ago. And now it feels like that's, you know, a thousand times more. Um, But at the same time, like, like um, Ali was saying, there's, there's, uh, it's almost all consuming, right? COVID is, it is the frame for everything that we're, we're involved with. So I'm, I'm curious how you keep it fresh, particularly when it comes to relationships, since you can't interact with, with people directly and develop those relationships through in-person mm-hmm. meetings. I feel like I've been talking on the phone a lot. Um, and, um, you know, when I've called pastors for certain stories that we're working on, it hasn't been just a conversation where it's like a 10-minute, five-minute conversation to get a reaction quote. They're full-on... 30 minute or hour long conversations about how they're adapting. What are you learning? Um, You know, how do you think this will change your congregation moving forward? And um, from there, from those conversations, you just get more story ideas. Hmm. And so, um, so I've been able to nurture those relationships and start those relationships that way. And um, you know, for example, when we were calling churches on how they were preparing for Easter. Um, I talked to this Methodist pastor whose church pre-pandemic would meet in a parking lot in downtown Los Angeles. And um, they didn't have a physical building for you know their, their congregation. So they would just meet in the middle of downtown LA in a parking lot. And so what's interesting about that, and I'm working on a follow-up story and that, you know, I just called her to talk about Easter, is that she told me that they've never had to rely on offerings because the parking lot that they own, the way that they would get, you know, their, you know, money is through people who would go to Staples Center to watch a game or people who would go to a, um, watch a show at a venue in downtown LA. And obviously people can't go out anywhere right now so they're not getting any of that money anymore right. um and also because they were in the middle of downtown la you know they were kind of like a presence for some people who are homeless and you know that was like a place for them to go on sundays and mm-hmm. now they don't know how to get in touch w- with uh those people because normally they would have that established connection with them or but now 
you know, people who don't have a home or don't have the services they used to, they may not be able to charge their phone where they normally normally would. And so they can't even get in touch of those members who would go to their services on Sunday. So, you know, that's something that they're going through as well. Yeah. Do you feel like folks are more apt to be more vulnerable or transparent given the fact that we are in this collective situation together? I think so. And one thing that I've learned is that, you know, with all these Zoom services and streaming mass and um, that pastor told me that she feels that people and pastors are less, um, I don't know, I guess they're more open to um, attending, virtually attending other services. You know, like she said that she's gotten pastors attend her services online, or she's been able to see how another pastor conducts their services and she learns from them and they exchange ideas that way. So people are not so, people are more willing to share and um, share ideas through how they're doing things. And so, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that I've been hearing. Yeah, the, the, children's classes and and holiday celebrations that I've participated in over the the last few weeks with my family have it's attracted people from all over the country if not all over the world right because we all have this opportunity if you if you get an invite or you know somebody who's doing something and think oh, I'm not doing anything that particular afternoon why not you know Skype into what right. they're doing yeah northampton massachusetts or scotland or <laughs> you know wherever else mm-hmm. deepa what about with you do you feel like the relationships that you'd cultivated over these years are they are they continuing to 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 strengthen during this are you able to cultivate new relationships with yeah i think i think a bit of both because um you know i i spent uh, four or five years on the religion beat uh before this happened so I've, I've really had a chance to build like a wide network of sources in this region. And uh, I found people, you know, calling me just out of the blue to, you know, not to pitch a story, but to just check on me uh, because that's just the nature of the spiritual faith community. You know, they just want to make sure you're okay. And that was really nice. I was really touched by that. It was unexpected. And, and I really like that they reached out to me in that way. And um, yeah, those are real people um, too. Yeah, very real people. <laughs> that, that's one advantage of being on this beat, right? It's not all, you know, professional. Um, so, and, and, and you know, I've, these are people I've had long conversations with about faith and spirituality. So it kind of tends to get more personal because hmm. you, you, it's not just them, but you tend to get vulnerable with them too when you talk about faith. So I think that that's the big difference on this beat. Um, so as far as building new relationships, it hasn't been, uh, thanks to social media, that's been possible and relatively painless. Um, I've, I've, uh, there, there've been a lot of people when I put things out on Facebook or Twitter, you know, people always refer, I get tons of ideas and, and, and source recommendations. So, you know, that's been, that's been really great to crowdsource during this time. At the risk of, of asking you to predict the future, how do you, <laughs> Deepa, how do you feel, you know, the direction of things are going in, in Southern California? I mean, obviously, the governor out there, Newsom, is, is coming up as one of these rock star governors. Um, mm-hmm. So do folks feel like, like the 
predictions for, for how California is going to um, uh, roll with the crisis? Are, are they feeling optimistic and hopeful about it? Particularly, I think everyone is starting to think about, you know, a scenario where, where things are gradually opening up. So I would apply the same to religious groups. I think they're also starting to think about, well, if they open up the church, you know, what would that look like? Um, you know, would they continue with communion or would things happen in a different way? Would everybody be wearing masks during service? And, you know, they're already starting to think about it. So I think that would be the stories we'd probably be working on in the next few weeks or so. Yeah, same here. And also just, you know, see what, like, the smaller churches were, if they were able to weather this, if they have to close, um, you know, things like that. But like deep, I think we are going to start looking at the process that many churches are going to have to go through in reopening. Well, it's been, been a quite a wild ride for your first uh, half a year or so on, on the beat here, Alejandra. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys get to, to have a, a good in-person, uh, you know, celebration for your one-year anniversary with all your RNS crew? Yeah, that would be nice. I was planning to visit a friend in Canada later this fall, so I'm sure that's not going to happen, but that's about it. Yeah. yeah, I was planning to go see my family in India this summer. That's not happening. Yeah. I'm really bummed about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, but yeah. because I don't get to see other... them every year. A whole other situation, right? I, I I spoke to a friend a couple of weeks ago about some of the nutty conspiracy theories or you know folk remedies that were sort of passing around. Oh yeah. WhatsApp groups. He was not enthusiastic <laughs> about what his parents were getting. <laughs> <laughs> I know my mom is sending me all these weird videos of. Uh, well, this man said this about Trump. What do you think about it? And I saw it on WhatsApp and my friend shared it on Facebook. Like, mom, don't pay attention to any of these people. Just, <laughs> so it's just, yeah. Yeah, I tell both my mom and my mother-in-law, you know, as long as you want to look at WhatsApp for entertainment, I'm cool with that. But do not come and present information to me. Yes. You know, it, it's really annoying, especially when, when you're trying to get facts out. It's like, yeah. Yeah. stop you're it already. You're a professional journalist. Please vet this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, I, I know. And I told my mom, like, well, I appreciated that you sent it to me first before posting it publicly. So <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that's why you got into this business, right? To to make sure you you're you're protecting your parents. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Information. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, great. Thanks, guys, so much. I really appreciate both of you uh, taking the time to check in. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was fun. It's always fun. I know. Talking to you guys. Your stories, and I'm looking forward to continuing to read both of your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for arranging this. That's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to thank my guests, Deepa Barath of the Orange County Register and Alejandro Molina of the Religion News Service for joining me, not once but twice, for our conversation. We do try to keep innovating here at Interfaith-ish, and the opportunity for a wee bit of time travel was a new one. I hope you enjoyed taking this ride with me. 
As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find quality podcasts. In the show notes to this episode, you can find links to a number of the articles Deepa, Ali, and I referenced during our discussions. And you can follow us on Instagram at interfaith-ish, where you can compare photos of the three of us in Vegas back in September with our Zoom screenshot from earlier this week. I look way younger back in September, but that's just because I had shaved right before the RNA conference. I do it maybe once a year. My wife and daughter strongly prefer my beard. What about you, dear listeners? Have a look on Instagram and let me know. You can also keep writing us about the interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I. T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programming seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. <laughs>